Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, setting in motion a brutal war that has now left tens of thousands of people dead and millions displaced. At the war's outset, Forum talked with Sacramento Ukrainian Ole Kuzo, with foreign policy expert Alina Polyakova, and with former Ukraine ambassador Steve Pfeiffer, who predicted this in the days before the invasion. This would be a tragedy for Ukraine, but I think it's also going to be a tragedy for a lot of Russian families because a lot of Russian soldiers are going to go home in body bags if the, Rus- if the Kremlin makes the mistake of launching that attack. One year after that attack, we check back in with all three of them. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. On February 18th of last year, former Ukraine ambassador under Clinton, Stephen Pfeiffer, joined us to discuss the news from Washington. President Biden had just announced that he believed a Russian attack on Ukraine was imminent. Here's what Pfeiffer said. Certainly what you hear from Washington and from NATO is a great deal of alarm. And American officials say the same thing in private because of this huge massing of Russian forces in occupied Crimea, on uh, Ukraine's east, in Belarus to the north. They have multiple attack quarters into Ukraine and over 150,000 troops. Of course, Russian forces did invade on February 24th. And today, a year later, Ukraine still stands, defying expectations that it would quickly fall to a more powerful Russian army. But the war wears on, and a negotiated peace is all but off the table. We look back on the conflict with guests who joined Forum when it began. And with me now is Ambassador Pfeiffer, affiliate of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. Welcome back, Ambassador Pfeiffer. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Dr. Alina Polyakova, head of the Center for European Policy Analysis. Thanks for being back as well, Dr. Polyakova. No, thanks for having me back. Ambassador Pfeiffer, after the war began, and I saw the way Ukrainians fought back, I thought often of our conversation, the one we'd had before Russia invaded, particularly this moment when you described the determination of Ukrainians to defend their country should Russia attack. Let's hear a little of what you told me back then. Uh, the Ukrainian military, even though it's going to be outmatched by the Russians, will fight. But it's also civilians. Um, you know, you talk to people and they say, what if the Russians come in? They say, I'm going to go get a gun and I'm going to go fight for my country. Uh, I talked to a friend 10 days ago in Kiev and she said that at that point in time in the capital, there was a two week waiting list for civilians who wanted to get small arms training. I, I'm not sure the Russians or that the Kremlin understands just how much animosity there is in Ukraine, not towards Russian people, but towards the Russian government. And if they were to go into Ukraine, they would have to deal not only with the Ukrainian military, but I do believe that they would find themselves engaged in a significant guerrilla campaign. Hmm. Ambassador Piver, your impression of the resolve of the Ukrainian people 
proves spot on, as we can hear in that clip. I wonder, while their resolve was not surprising to you, was there anything that was in those early days? Yes, I have to confess that I shared the assessment of uh, the American military, the American intelligence community, and I think most of the West, that the Ukrainian military, being much smaller than the Russian army, less well-equipped, would likely lose. And when I talked about the Ukraine's resisting, what I envisaged was much more of a decades-long bloody guerrilla campaign against a Russian occupation. Hmm. I have been surprised, very uh, positively surprised, by the ability of the Ukrainian military uh, to hold off the Russian military. And that certainly, I think, came as a surprise to the Kremlin and the Russian general staff, who did not expect the degree of resistance that they have encountered from uh, Ukraine soldiers. And the weaknesses of the Russian military, too. Many were surprised by that. Uh, the Russian military has spent hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 15 years modernizing their forces. I believe that Russian Defense Minister Shoigu said last year that over 70% of the equipment in the conventional forces had been modernized. Uh, they have not put that to good use. Uh, and I think they have been defeated uh, or stalled by Ukrainian resilience, uh, Ukrainian agility in the battlefield, and also Ukrainian courage. Uh, again, uh, the effort of the Ukrainians to stop the original assault and then turn it back on Kiev, where the Russians basically withdrew from northern Ukraine after five weeks of fighting because they couldn't get near the capital. Uh, and, and that reflects, some, I think, some real problems on the Russian military side as well. Yeah. Dr. Polyakova, you joined Forum on February 25th, one day after the invasion. And, and that time, the scenarios that many experts were envisioning were pretty terrifying. I think you said we could conceivably have a situation where President Zelensky was imprisoned after a show trial or where Kiev was quickly taken and held hostage to try to get concessions. So I imagine the way the war unfolded militarily had surprised you as well. Well, I don't think it just surprised me. I think it surprised the entire U.S. and broader Western intelligence community, as well as um, the Russian military, uh, because, of course, uh, the Kremlin was, I think, expecting a three-day war, uh, which is one reason why they called it a so-called special military operation. And I think what we've learned is, of course, that, one, we not only greatly overestimated Russian capabilities and greatly underestimated Ukrainian people's will to fight for their country, but we also underestimated Ukrainian leadership, most notably President Volodymyr Zelensky, who, of course, did not run away, um, who has stayed in Kiev and who has really emerged um, as the embodiment of courage, uh, not just for Ukraine, but I think for the entire world. Um, so, yes, that that has been, I suppose, surprising because everything pointed in the direction of uh, a Russian swoop on Ukraine's capital um, and their desire at the time, as we understand it now, was to install some sort of puppet uh, regime. And we have a very, very different scenario now. Yes. In addition to that, uh, you have pointed out the impact of the war on NATO and the European order. Can you talk about also how, I know we've been saying surprising a lot, but there are some things about it that we really probably did not imagine before the invasion in terms of their willingness to come together 
Well, you know, I remember very clearly, and I'm reminded of the conversations that took place um, at the Munich Security Conference, which mm -hmm. is the largest gathering of global leaders on uh, on security and defense. And that last year it took place uh, just a few days before the full-scale invasion. I was just at the same conference a couple of days ago before the anniversary uh, that we're discussing here today. And, you know, I was just struck uh, really remembering how uh, a year ago, European allies, officials that I spoke with uh, really did not think that such an invasion was going to take place because it was unimaginable. We really thought that we had left conventional war in Europe in the 20th century. And what, of course, we have now seen is that history is coming back um, in a really profound way to Europe. Um, we've seen some really significant cooperation, I think, among NATO allies in particular over the last year to supply Ukraine uh, with weapon systems, to supply Ukraine with economic assistance. The United States, for example, right now, we don't talk about this as much as we talk about all of the various fancy weapon systems that we're sending to Ukraine. But the U.S. is also providing 1.5 billion of direct budgetary assistance to Ukraine because, of course, Ukraine's economy um, is being destroyed every single day by, by the Russian war as well and the Russian blockade of Ukraine's ports on the Black Sea. So it's a significant investment um, into Ukraine that we've seen take shape. Um, I would say not all has been positive, and certainly this year um, at the Munich Security Conference, again, um, this was the, dom the most dominant, prominent area of discussion of what was happening in Ukraine and uh, what we're likely to see from the more. President Zelensky spoke at the Munich Security Conference this year again by video link. Um, but I think the message that we have seen emerge now is that the allies will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. What we haven't seen emerge um, despite all the investment, is a real vision for what we're trying to achieve. So yes, we're going to be with Ukraine. We take President Biden at his word and world leaders at their word with Ukraine for as long as it takes. But for as long as it takes to do what is the question that many people were really asking this year um, at this gathering a few days ago. And were you hearing any answers or, or what would you have liked to have heard as an answer to that question? Um, there are answers, but I would say right now, the Western alliance is not speaking with one voice. Um, yes, we heard actually quite significant U.S. congressional bipartisan support. You know, I don't think I have to tell anyone how rare it is now to see bipartisan agreement in such a crystal clear way on anything in our country, unfortunately. But on this issue in Ukraine, we heard public comments from uh, Senate uh, minority Leader Mitch McConnell. We heard exact same comments from uh, the former Speaker uh, of the House, Nancy Pelosi, um, from many other leaders in the U.S. Congress from both sides of the aisle that our focus should be for Ukraine to win. Those exact words were uttered by all of these um, congressional leaders from both, uh, both political parties. We did not hear those words from the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, from President Macron of France. And we also didn't exactly hear that from President Biden, despite the historic visit um, and the very courageous visit that President Biden made to Kiev just a few days later. So there's still, to my mind, 
the support is there, the agreement that we need to support is there, but the end goal is still really, really ambiguous. And if I may, I think the big problem with that is when we present any ambiguity at all, what how that's read by the Kremlin and in Russia um, is that we're weak. So that kind of ambiguity encourages the Kremlin um, that already believes, President Putin believes that time is on his side and that we will tire of this war because we don't want to be in another forever war, a protracted long-term conflict uh, that has no end in sight or clear victory in sight. And I also think that's contributing to what we've seen over the year with a lot of Americans in public opinion polling are not as supportive. They're still supportive on the whole, but certainly among Republicans, those numbers have been slipping. Fewer Republican voters in the U.S. support uh, the U.S. supporting Ukraine, fewer Democratic voters. Um, and that's all the result of this kind of ambiguity, in my view, because, mm-hmm. you know, if we said our goal is to win, then we would do whatever it took to win, meaning we would give the Ukrainians what they need now so we don't end up in a forever war. Helena Polyakova is president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, also adjunct professor of European studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Stephen Pfeiffer is affiliate of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and former ambassador to Ukraine. You, our listeners, are also with us as we reflect back on one year of the war and hear from them how they're assessing it now. You can join us with your thoughts at 866-733-6786 by posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking back this hour on one year since Russia invaded Ukraine and hearing reflections from experts and Ukrainian nationals who joined us on Forum when the war began and hearing how they're assessing it now. Alina Polyakova is with us, president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. Stephen Pfeiffer is with us, former ambassador to Ukraine and former senior director at the National Security Council in the Clinton administration, now an affiliate at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. And you, our listeners, are with us as well. Tell us, are you hopeful, inspired? fearful, weary? How do you feel about the war in Ukraine one year later? Has your opinion of the war changed in the last year? You can share your thoughts by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. 
I'd like to bring into the conversation now Ole Kuzo, trustee of the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California. Ole, thanks so much for being back with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a, pl- a privilege and pleasure for me to be here. We talked with you five days into the war when you told the story of how your sister's cousin had left for Poland. You described the crush of people trying to cross the border, the the 24 hours that it took to just get there, and uh, for, I believe, your brother-in-law to get back after dropping your sister's cousin off. Is your sister's cousin still in Poland at this time? Uh, he he wasn't in the Poland. Uh, no, no, he, you're... He... Yeah, my 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 sister-in-law. She oh, sister-in-law. Uh, stayed, sorry, mm-hmm. my cousin. She stayed. She stayed in Poland for uh, three months uh, until the summer. And uh, as as it as it became kind of quite obvious that this is going to last uh, more than than expected, she arranged for her return with two kids to for her to go back to her house. And uh, they they returned back. Uh, uh, it wasn't too possible for them to stay and, and raise two kids in Poland, right? So so they had to they had to come come back. Mm. So your sister's cousin wanted to be in Ukraine. Well, he he he, he wasn't to go to Poland in the first place. They just got 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 her his wife to the border. And left them, uh, left them across to let them across the border, and he went back. He wasn't uh, even allowed to go to. What about your mother-in-law in Lviv? You were hoping, I believe, that she'd come to California. Well, uh, yes, we uh, 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 again. The United States opened the door to many, many Ukrainians, uh, and United for Ukraine. The, the program has been uh, established, right? And we've seen the people coming, coming, taking, taking this opportunity to uh, go to U.S. And we were asking, or, or basically entertaining the idea that my mother-in-law would come to us but she said okay this is this is not the time for me to to leave the country and and she decided to stay uh well that's uh that was her decision and she stands by it but the, the life is now uh, was a power outages and so so they had to kind of the the friends and family help her to established the, the housing basically with the backup generators and she still uh, have to use her basement as a, as a shelter when the air raids sirens uh, um, uh, are, are, are in, in the air so, so basically but but she decided not not to go hmm. well well I'm so glad to hear that they at least are still safe, though dealing with so much. I'm curious about the toll this past year has taken on you. Has it? Have you have you lost people? Has it been hard? Well, uh, the circle, right? Uh, not not in the immediate circle, and and I'm thankful uh, to God for that. But but the circle, right? It, it suddenly became from five handshakes, four handshakes, and 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 now we are at the the, at the time where, where I have friends whose relatives are are either um, killed in the active conflict or uh, or or. or 
basically they they lost their their relatives and the circle is 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 basically narrowing and and, and now it's it's just a two handshakes away uh, in my immediate circle uh, there were luckily again not among my friends but but friends of friends and, and people that i know uh have paid the, the ultimate price and uh, this is and and again this this, this is just a um, not a daily occurrence, but it, it's a constant occurrence, and this this takes a, a lot to process and and to um, kind of say, okay, let, let's how do we move on from here? And yeah, just a couple of handshakes away from someone who has passed. I remember when we talked, Ole, you were talking about the unity that you were witnessing, the support uh, for Ukrainians. Although this year has has taken quite a toll, have there been any silver linings, or has it had an impact on on your organization, for example? Well, yes, and 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 yes, and yes, it's it's uh, the the unity is there, and we see it on so many levels and so many horizontal levels and vertical levels and horizontal. I mean. I mean, it's across the community and it, it's across, we've seen a help from Buddhist church in Sacramento here. We've seen a help from Vietnamese community. We've seen a individual's help. And then on a vertical level, we've seen a help from corporation donors, right? So our club got some matching programs. Uh, and then again, we petitioned the government, right? And and we used our our, our um, rights here in the United States to petition the government, and we've seen the uh, the fruits of, of this of this uh, kind of petitioning uh, as U.S. is now leading the the uh, the list of the of the helpers, Ukrainian helpers in the military and non-military aid. So I would say again, this this unity, and, and it all starts with with all the the weakest links, right? It all starts with the people. And it all kind of snowballs, so to speak, uh, in, into a, a larger, larger, larger uh, uh, impact. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm glad to to see the the results. And again, but the price the price that that, that we pay for this unity is is uh, is enormous. Yes, Oleg Kuzo is trustee of the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California. Thank you so much for talking with us again. Thank you for having me. Alina Polyakova, I I didn't get to ask you this earlier, but I, I know that you are from Kyiv. Um, and I do want to ask how your friends and family are doing. You mentioned last year that no one you'd talked to intended to leave Ukraine. Have they stayed and have they stayed safe? No, thanks so much for that question. Um, you know, uh, I'm lucky that my family, we immigrated um, in 1991. And, you know, we actually have uh, family in Russia because that's very common um, that you would have family from Ukraine and Russia um, as well. And that, that's been interesting to hear their thoughts, to be honest, on everything that's been happening. Uh, very, very depressing. Um, but and, and Ukraine, yeah, it's it's been really difficult. Um, you know, some close friends of mine left um, Ukraine and eventually had to evacuate uh, their families, um, a close friend uh, to evacuate her elderly parents and 90-something-year-old grandmother um, to Germany from Ukraine. And, 
you know, uh, that entire um, uh, travel path, if you want to call it that, from Ukraine to Poland, then potentially to other parts of Western Europe, it's still very fraught. I mean, even mm-hmm. though the war has been happening for a year, I sometimes feel like we've forgotten that there are literally millions and millions of Ukrainians that have left um, and millions that remain, obviously, in Ukraine. Men cannot leave Ukraine, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Poland has been settling now. Uh, 1.5 million Ukrainians are now in Poland. And the system, there's not really a system in place still. Um, it's still all very driven by, you know, local civil society groups and individuals. Um, you know, I mentioned just very quickly on this point, um, I was at the Munich Security Conference this this uh, past week and had a chance to really see for the first time uh, quite a few Ukrainian friends and colleagues that I haven't seen in a very long time. Um, and I think all of us just spent uh, one of those nights uh, uh, crying together. And I was I met um, some very, very young men um, who had been in battle. Um, they're Ukrainian soldiers, freedom fighters um, who had lost limbs. And when I went up to one of them and I said, thank you so much for your service and for defending your country and uh, my my country, um, he said, you have nothing to thank me for. And this is a man who had lost um, an arm um, in battle, uh, very young, probably early 20s. And I was just very taken aback by that comment because it just once again um, has solidified how despite the brutality and the atrocities of this war, some, some of which are just so brutal, I can't even talk about them, to be honest, Every single Ukrainian, every single Ukrainian has been affected by this war and has been traumatized by this war in, in a really profound way. Um, my organization is actually invested in bringing Ukrainian journalists and scholars to the United States. And we have five Ukrainians with us now in Washington, D.C., um, many of them with little kids. And I think the effects on the next generation of Ukrainians um, the kids who are growing up with uh, air sirens on a daily basis, um, who are hearing explosions, who are hearing bombs. I mean, um, this this is really, really um, a generational uh, trauma that we're seeing unfold in Ukraine. It's a really important point to make. I, I know you need to leave us, Dr. Polyakova, but thank you so much for the the time you were able to give us today. No, thank you so much for having me and and, and thank you for hosting this important conversation. I really appreciate it. Dr. Elena Polyakova, head of the Center for European Policy Analysis, adjunct professor of European studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Steve Pfeiffer is with us, former ambassador to Ukraine, affiliate of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. And to get more of a picture of what's happening on the ground, as uh, Lena Polyakova alluded to. We have with us now Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, whose recent book is Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. Thanks for being with us, Luke. Uh, Well, great to be with you again, and hello from Kiev. Yes, what is the mood in Kiev right now on the eve of the anniversary of the war? Well, I mean, it's actually eerily quiet. I mean, there's been a lot of talk uh, about a potential Russian attack, a a barrage of missiles of the kind that we've seen pretty regularly in Kiev since October, with Russia trying to 
uh, destroy energy infrastructure, knock out power grids, make people freeze, um, just kind of immiserate the Ukrainian population. But but so far, there's there's been nothing. And, you know, I just don't know at the moment, we don't know at the moment if that means it's going to be a very uh, rough night ahead or whether, as, you know, one Ukrainian um, official I was talking to um, yesterday was saying um, Vladimir Putin has got no secret pill. In other words, he he can't do anything uh, markedly different from what he's done over the last 12 months. I mean, he can push, and we've seen intensified attacks in the east. I'm just back from a sweep of the front line. I was in Hezon in the south, the city recaptured by Ukrainian forces last November. I was then in Zaporizhia, which is another front line uh, in the south a bit further along, where, where yeah, there's, there's, there's um, you know, the boom of artillery from both sides, the snow, there's abandoned villages, there's enormous destruction. But the front line is relatively static. Uh, and I was also also briefly in the east um, over the weekend, where, where fighting continues to rage around the city of Bakhmut, which the Russians have been trying to take for, for months, I mean, so, since last summer. So, you know, the war continues. But what I would say is that I was out and about today in the Maidan, which is Kiev's main uh, square, independent square. Um, Ukrainians are remarkably resilient and, and also upbeat. I mean, that sounds kind of crazy after a year of horror, but but you, you talk to anybody uh, and they all say, they all believe in victory. I mean, it'd be interesting to know what Stephen says about this, but they all think Ukraine is going to win. I mean, it, there's a sort of fuzzier question about what victory would look like, but they're confident that Ukraine will win. They believe in victory and they think it's going to come sooner or later. You've reported, Luke, that President Biden's visit earlier this week sort of buoyed their spirits can you talk about that? Do you think that's part of it? I, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, actually, to be honest, no one thought that President Biden would come. I mean, I mean clearly, clearly a, a trip has been on the cards for, for a long time. I was at a press conference with Vladimir Zelensky uh, in April of last year, a couple of months into the invasion, where he sort of formally issued an invite to, to the president and said, you know, when security allows. But I, well, I mean, I wrote this actually for The Guardian. I, I do think Biden's visit was probably the most consequential trip by any American president to a European country since the end of the Cold War. And I think it's right up there with with um, Kennedy's kind of uh, Berlin speech in the, in the early 60s, because I, I mean, I think the, the reason Ukrainians were so cheerful is they sort of feel with the US as an ally, they cannot lose. I mean, it doesn't mean that they necessarily, um, you know, defeat the Russian army, you know, once and for all. But but you know what 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 they feared a year ago actually and most ukrainians thought this is that that actually kiev would fall and the, the country might be conquered by russia now that hasn't happened ukraine has survived as an independent state as a, as a, as a sovereign entity as a, a as a country with a democratic government so you, you might argue that that ukraine has already prevailed but i sort of think with with new western weapons with with uh, american intelligence with American political military assistance, which has been enormous, running running into the many billions of dollars, that that Ukraine thinks that that maybe 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 they can do it this year. Hmm. Ambassador Piper, how consequential do you think Biden's speech in Kiev was? But I, particularly, I'm curious about the effect you think it had on the Russian people, potentially. Yeah. No, first of all, I th- I think the speech had a huge impact on Ukrainians. Uh, it was. A, the right decision by President Biden to go to Kiev. I can only imagine the logistics nightmare. I was, we hosted President Clinton to Kiev 
uh, back in 2000, and the logistics of moving the president are something to be seen. Uh, how they pulled this off and how they did it without any public notice was, I think, really a tribute to the organizational skills. But it was a good message for the Ukrainians, but I all think, so think it was a message to Russia. And it was interesting to me watching some of the Russian television pundits talking about this. And of course, they were very upset. They were mocking the president. But you saw images being broadcast on Russian national television to 145 million Russians that the American president was in Kyiv, you know, a country under assault by the Russian army. And that had to be a shock to them. And so I think that was a good message to send to the Russians as well as to the Ukrainians. I actually want to play a cut from... President Biden's speech and get your thoughts. I speak once more to the people of Russia. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. Those were comments in Warsaw on Tuesday, but your reaction, Ambassador Pfeiffer, and we're coming right up on a break, so sorry about that. It it was good of the president to send that message to the Russians because a lot of the Russian pundits and Russian officials are trying to portray this war as existential for Russia. The fact is Russia can lose this war and there will still be a Russian state. The Ukrainian army is not going to march on Kyiv. And so I think while supporting Ukraine, it was also important that President Biden signal the Russians this is not about destroying Russia. It's about throwing the Russian army out of Ukraine. We are talking with Stephen Pfeiffer, with Luke Harding, and with you, our listeners. I see your comments, and we'll get to them right after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the war in Ukraine, one year after Russia invaded. It's been, in President Biden's words, a war of extraordinary brutality that's killed tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainians as well as Russian soldiers, but destroyed cities, displaced millions of Ukrainians. We're hearing from guests who joined us on Forum at the outset of the war, and we're also hearing from Luke Harding, foreign correspondent of The Guardian. His recent book is Invasion, the Inside Story of Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Stephen Pfeiffer 
is a former ambassador to Ukraine and former senior director at the National Security Council in the Clinton administration. And you, our listeners, are with us in this conversation. And Daniel writes, it's taking far too long to get arms to Ukraine to make a significant dramatic difference. Some areas along the eastern front lines have barely enough to hold ground. Sean writes, President Biden should give Ukraine long-range military capability immediately, such as attack jets and longer-reach missiles. There is a decent chance a Republican president could get elected in 2024, resulting in significant aid cuts to Ukraine. would love to get your reaction to these listeners saying this, um, Stephen Pfeiffer, with regard to military support uh, for Ukraine. One thing that President Biden, of course, did not say in terms of the substantial support he was giving would be fighter jets. Just curious what you think about how the U.S. is handling its commitments. Yes. I, I believe the Biden administration has in general done a very good job of supporting Ukraine and managing diplomacy and holding together an alliance and a coalition of countries in support of Ukraine. The one criticism I would say is that we should and could be doing more in terms of arming the Ukrainians. Uh, I think there's a concern uh, about striking targets in Russia, but the Ukrainians have already said that they would commit to use Western-provided weapons only against Russian targets in occupied Ukraine. So I believe providing the Ukrainians more armor, perhaps some longer-range ground-to-ground missiles that would allow them to hold at risk Russian targets throughout occupied Ukraine would give the uh, Ukrainian military greater wherewithal and greater prospects of success in conducting a counteroffensive. And I think that's important because it seems to me that a long war holds no advantages for Ukraine. It's just going to mean more death and destruction for Ukrainians. It will also, I believe, as we go months and months down the road, it may make it more difficult for the West to sustain public support for supporting Ukraine. So I would argue that trying to provide the Ukrainians weapons now so that they could conduct counteroffensives that might allow them to shorten the war and if not drive the Russians completely out of Ukraine at least change the calculation in Moscow where the Russians begin to look for a way out that might open a path to a serious negotiation that could produce a settlement on terms that Ukraine could accept. Luke Harding, I remember when we talked to you, I think it was in December of last year, you mentioned that private fears in the Zelensky government is that the West, I think you used the word wobble, that it may wobble in terms of its support. Is that still an existing fear. Um, well, while Ambassador Piper is, is saying that we need to do more. Um, it, it is a fear. Um, but actually, thus far, I think, um, as, as Ambassador Piper was saying, I mean, there's, there's been incredible support from the US and its allies. This, this anti-Kremlin coalition has held up astonishingly um, well, um, and really has kind of, um, I would say, kind of uh, sort of defeated the, the, the Putin assumption, the Kremlin assumption that the West would flake. I mean, I think I used the word wobble last time, but basically Putin thinks that sooner or later, Western governments will grow tired of the war, they'll be voted out, or their public will become disillusioned, and that he can win. I mean, he seems quite comfortable with war. And really, the speech that he gave earlier this week in Moscow was sort of preparing preparing his country for a forever war. I mean, he, 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 he likes the, the increased control he has over Russian society. He likes the fact that he's smashed the opposition, that the oligarchs are cowed. Um, and he switched Russia. I mean, now all these international companies have fled. He's sort of switching it to, to a 
almost a wartime economy. So, so he he is, you know, he's always he's been very fixated on history. I mean, he wrote this pseudo essay which he published in in the summer of 2021 on the Kremlin website, which was a sort of a blueprint for invasion, arguing that Ukraine was was never a country. And he, his his sort of calculation, he's thinking five, 10, 50, 100 years about sort of gathering what he regards as Russian lands. Um, and and I, I think the Ukrainians want to, to, to win quicker. And, and what's interesting is that where I just was in Zaporizhia, mm. talking to Ukrainian commanders on the ground there, that they say at the moment we do not have enough to push forward. But they're, they're still optimistic that when Western tanks arrive, when better long-range artillery arrives, they're, they're talking about late spring. So we're saying, you know, March, perhaps April. They will be able to do a counteroffensive, but but if they can't do it, then I think we're going to be in a situation of stalemate. <laughs> this listener tweets: Would Ukraine and Russia accept an independent Crimea in exchange for Ukrainian membership into the EU and Russian military withdrawal? Ambassador Piper, it feels like a resolution like this, or the prospects of a resolution like this, is is off the table. But tell me what you think. It's, I think, at this point, uh, impossible to see uh, any space for diplomacy between Moscow and Kyiv. Um, the Russians defined a set of conditions back in February of last year, which amounted to virtual total capitulation by the Ukrainian side. And then bizarrely, in September, when the Russian army was losing on the battlefield, Putin advanced even further demands of Kyiv. Uh, I think also that Back in early March, President Zelensky was truly pained by the fact that Ukrainians were dying each day. And the Ukrainians were trying to negotiate in earnest a year ago to try to find an end to the fighting quickly on. They were prepared to accept neutrality. I believe they were even prepared at that point to talk about some territorial concessions. That changed though over the course of March. And what changed it was as the Ukrainians liberated towns north of Kyiv that had been occupied temporarily by Russian forces coming out of Belarus, places like Bucha and Irpin, what they discovered were mass graves, 500 people killed during the Russian occupation in Bucha alone. The torture chambers, they heard the stories about rapes, uh, stories about Ukrainian children being taken without permission back to Russia. And what that's done is it's hardened the attitude of the Ukrainian government, but as importantly, it's hardened the attitude of the Ukrainian population. So there was a poll back in October or November, and it so showed, I believe, 86% of Ukrainians supporting continuing the war to victory and opposing negotiations. So it's very difficult to see how you can get to a negotiation now. It seems to me that the first step has to be some change in Moscow where the Kremlin recognizes that its demands are completely out of sync with what's happening on the battlefield. But I don't think at this point, Mr. Putin is prepared to make those, science sort of change, those kinds of changes. Uh, now, the question to my mind is, as the, the economic sanctions, which I believe are doing damage to the Russian economy as they continue to take a toll, but more importantly, as this steady flow of body bags comes home from Ukraine, as more and more Russians see their sons and their brothers and their husbands being killed in this terrible war, does that begin to erode elite support and of the will of the public to continue this fight in Russia? Putin's prepared to go on for a long time. The question is how much pain are the Russian people prepared to bear 
And they've already, by I think Western estimates, suffered 60,000 Russian soldiers killed and another 140,000 Russian soldiers injured. Well, Patricia writes, Putin has a strong ally in the Russian Orthodox Church in his ongoing campaign to justify the war it's waging in Ukraine. The head of the church is a powerful voice for sanctioning Russia's attacks on civilians and the war crimes. He's well known for rallying Russian recruits for what he insists is a noble cause. Do you think that's part of it, Ambassador Piper? Well, there have been a number of reports that the patriarch of the uh, Russian uh, Orthodox Church uh, also has an affiliation with the KGB. Uh, and you do see the church, uh, you know, blessing nuclear missiles, nuclear submarines in ways that I think strike uh, many in the West as a bit odd. And and Putin has really embraced that church and has basically said what Russia is doing in terms of resisting the West is standing up for traditional Russian values and such. And unfortunately, I think the Russian Orthodox Church uh, has played along with him on that. Let me go to caller Heather in San Leandro. Hi, Heather. You're on. Hi. Um, I wonder if we would be in a different place now had uh, the Trump um, had Trump not withheld the money from Ukraine that we were supposed to have given them in before this war even started. And I, I do agree with you that um, it's going to take um, the pain of the Russian people in coming home in body bags in, in order for anything to happen because Putin doesn't care. It's just fodder for his machine. Um but I think that we we need to just give them the material and support that we need now because we're just nickel and diming them to death. And it's just, like you said, it's going to create more Ukrainian dead people. And we put money, so much money over the long haul into so many other wars that basically have no end in sight. And this is one where people actually, I mean, they're staying in their country to fight, women, children, everybody. So I think that we need to just give them all the money now or else it's just going to be more dead people. Uh, Heather, thanks. We've asked our listeners to share with us how they're feeling about the war one year on, whether their opinion, their support for it has changed at all, what your questions are about it. And I'm struck by, at least so far from the listeners who have weighed in, they would like to see the U.S. continuing to support and even increase their support for Ukraine. We're talking with Stephen Pfeiffer, affiliate of the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and also with Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian. His recent book, Invasion, is the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. Earlier, we were joined by Ole Kuzo, a trustee of the Ukrainian Heritage Club of Northern California, and Dr. Lena Polyakova, president and CEO at the Center for European Policy Analysis. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener, Rachel, writes, This war has seared my heart more than any of the many I've lived through, partly because my grandparents came from the part of Hungary that is now western Ukraine, and I feel so connected to that land, but also because I thought Russia was more advanced in spirit and practical politics. I thought Putin would back down when provided with so many offers. I think one of the questions that I wonder about for you, Luke, you're talking about what you're seeing on the ground and, and when Ukraine, the Ukrainian military could launch another offensive um, with military support and with their view right now and optimism that they could potentially win. I'm, I'm curious if there are moments that we haven't touched on yet over the course of this last year that really stand out to you since you have been on the ground. I, I, it's I, what, what, what 
uh, kind of haunts me is the scale of the loss. I, I mean, just the, this morning, I was wandering down to the centre of Kiev where there is a kind of non-official memorial garden uh, where people can go and buy blue and yellow uh, Ukrainian flags from, from, from a cellar on, on, on the sidewalk and then plant them in this sort of sloping bank uh, next to the, the main sort of column, which which symbolizes Ukraine's independence. And I met one woman this morning called Luda, who had gone to look for the flag, which the widow of her son, Andre, that the widow, had, he was killed last summer, and, and she planted it in September, and she couldn't find it. Uh, and the reason she couldn't find it was because there were just too many new flags. It was just, just a whole mm. swath of flags there. And she, it was... It was nine in the morning. It was a freezing cold sort of blue skied morning. And she was telling me about her son, a conversation she had with him in March, a few weeks into the invasion, where she sort of said, look, don't join the army. And he said, look, you know, mum, if I don't do it, then who will? Uh, and he went off. Uh, he was fighting in Chance with an artillery unit. Um, and after two and a half months, a, a shell landed on his position, killing him and seven of his you know, friends, fellow soldiers, these, these were all volunteers. Um, and his seven-year-old son um, was left behind, went, went, went to a funeral in Kiev, and, you know, his widow was saying that how could she live without her husband? And and that that sort of mini-tragedy, I mean, it's it's just being repeated across the country on a huge scale. I mean, I mean 1,700 people, civilians killed in the Kiev region, 8,000-plus civilians killed so far, 461 children, 8 million people displaced. I mean, this is the biggest war on the European continent since 1945, and it's just uh, a series of horrors. I mean, I think, as I was saying, I think Ukraine will win, but the human cost has been has been so high. Let me go to caller Peter in San Rafael. Hi, Peter. You're on. Yeah, good morning. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm listening to the book by Eric Schlosser, Command and Control, about the nuclear arms race, and thinking, how much did we spend fighting the Soviet Union and Russia in the Cold War? It's trillions of dollars at great risk, great risk of nuclear war. And for those who might object to the, the, the cost of supporting the Ukrainians, think of the ratio between what we've already spent containing the Soviet Union uh, compared with what the Ukrainians are asking of us in fighting them face to face. There's no comparison. So we need to be conscious of the numbers here. Hmm. Ambassador Piper, do you think the Biden administration has done a good job communicating the stakes uh, for the U.S. And, and for the global order with regard to if Ukraine falls? Yeah, I, I, I think they have done an okay job. I, I think that they're going to, this is an area where they might improve their game. Because again, we should be looking at how we sustain public support from Democrats and Republicans alike for what could be a long war. And I see very important stakes. I mean, the United States has had an interest going back more than 70 years in a stable and secure Europe. That has economic, security, political implications. How this war in Ukraine, between Russia and Ukraine turns out will have a big impact on that kind of Europe. And if the Russians should win, and I'm, I'm with uh, Luke Hardy on this, I, I think in the end the Ukrainians will prevail. 
But if should Russia win, it's going to be a much less stable, a much less secure Europe, and it's going to require a lot of American attention and American resources. There's another thing that I would point out too is Vladimir Putin uh, in June of last year had a talk with a group of uh, Russian business students. And what he said at one point was, Russia was recovering historic Russian lands, and I'm referring to lands, and most of modern day Ukraine at one point was part of the Russian empire. Well, if you look at a map of the Russian empire, you see that uh, the Baltic states, a good chunk of Poland, all four of those are NATO members. Finland, which will soon be a member of NATO, were all part of the historic Russian lands under the Russian empire. And my concern is if Putin wins in Ukraine, there's a chance, perhaps not a large chance, but there's a chance that his ambitions might go further. In Ukraine, we're sending money and we're sending weapons. If Putin's ambitions after a victory in Ukraine would extend to, say, Eastern Estonia, we're going to be spending money, weapons, and the lives of American soldiers. It's in America's interest to stop Putin in Ukraine. Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, former ambassador to Ukraine, former senior director of the National Security Council in the Clinton administration, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, thank you for talking to us as well, for bringing the war home to so many of us here. Please stay safe, Luke. <laughs> thank you. A pleasure to talk to you again. And thank you, listeners, for sharing where you are at one year in after, as our guest described, a bloody and brutal war that has left tens of thousands, many more, perhaps potentially we don't know the full scale, dead, millions displaced. And thank you, Susie Britton, my producer, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. 
Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.